0: Last week, we, we were talking about belief and how, it, how easy it is to go through our traditions. I mean, uh, we all have, if you've grown up in church, you've seen different type of traditions and so forth, um, and, and how easy it is to actually talk about believing, uh, how it easy it is to study about believing, and how simple it is, or it seems to be, to believe. But at the same time, when the rubber meets the road do we really follow through on our belief? Christ said that it would be work to believe in God. Not that you have to work yourself into heaven, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's work to believe in something because you've, you've got to stand up for your belief. It's a very simple message from God and this is a simple message. Once we believe that Jesus died for our sins, then we are to to live in the way that he wants us to live. We're supposed to be out there doing the things for God. So it's different from this world of self-preservation, right? And it's difficult to act upon your belief in this world. And it always has been, because our beliefs are so different than what the world shows us. And we're seeing that battle in front of our eyes on the TV. We're seeing that battle on the news. We're seeing that battle pretty much everywhere today, what they're teaching our children and so forth. And, And all it takes is one person to try to slip in a belief, and we have to stand up and say, wait a second, that's not what we believe. Now, oftentimes, can you separate completely from this world and their belief system? You can't. So you have to have those conversations. I have those conversations with my son all the time. Well, Grayson, I know that app that you're playing, that game you're playing, says the earth is so many billions of years old and and the universe is so many billions, but that's not what we believe. And let me tell you why. So I have those conversations over and over. And we have to have that if we're going to stand on our beliefs. Now, the people last week, we were talking in the Bible, we're asking for more, more miracles. And the people were asking, you know, kind of these tangible things that they could point to and say, see, this is why I believe, instead of just believing. And ultimately, you know, that is what Christ wants us to do is to believe. Believe first, and then we see the miracles in our lives that will come. Believe first, and then he provides for us. It's not the opposite. The opposite, this world says, well, show me. And then I'll think about it. I'll consider it. And then maybe I'll believe. Uh, you know, as only, only as long as I can see these things. And this is exactly what the crowd was saying to Jesus. And Jesus understood this. But it's interesting. So far in the book of John, and it's good, I think, to periodically look back and see the big picture of what, uh, what John is trying to tell us. We see Jesus talking to Nicodemus, saying you need to be born again, the highbrow, the, high the, 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 the learned person. We see Jesus healing the guy on the, on the Sabbath, having control over the flesh, the lowest of the low, the people you ignore as you walk by. We see Jesus telling the Samaritan woman, I am the water of life. And then we see Jesus showing dominion over the land with loaves and fishes, Just going, I can duplicate this. I can feed all the people. And then over to the the water by walking on the water. And then he says, I am the bread of life, as we talked about last week. John is kind of taking us on this journey to see, to see how Jesus really is God himself. John is proving to us, showing us that he has dominion over everything. He is God. How God came down to this earth to save us. So he's taken his readers on this journey with him, and he takes us down this path that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the only way to heaven. There's no dispute on this this, it's just fact. It involves us believing in him. So simple, yet so complicated. See, the simple part is understanding that that there is a creator that loved me enough to come down here and save me, to die for me, me, to die for my sins, and accept me into heaven when I die, not because of my goodness, not because of how I served, only because I believed in him. The hard part is now that I believe, how does that change my life? How is that reflected in my life? And it can be a slow progress sometimes, right? Mess up, we confess. I will say I will never do it again, but then what do I find myself doing? The same sin again. So I confess again. The key is the longer I'm with Jesus, the longer I'm with the Holy Spirit and allow him to to slowly change me, the time frames between that same sin gets longer and longer. Am I sin? I confess it, and then it gets longer, and then I confess it if I sin again, and then it gets longer, because, because Jesus slowly changes us. I, I wish it was instant, but it's not. One of these days, I can raise the victory flag and rejoice, when, when my life starts to start looking more like what we talked about, uh, I think it was last week a little bit, the, the fruit of the Spirit, all the, goodly, you know, the goodness and the godliness and all those things that come into our life. So the question is, do you want to know if you're maturing as a Christian? Then ask yourself this, this year right now, does my life reflect more the Spirit than it did last year at this time? Does my life reflect more of God, more of Jesus, than it did last year at this time? And many of you, the answer may be yes. And, and some of you are thinking, ah, you know, I'm kind of struggling with this. And that's okay. I'm not trying to, you know, hit you on the head. I'm just saying it's a, you know, it's a slow progress. We have to go that direction. Because if you don't, you spin your wheels in the same place. You get bogged down. But we know it's a struggle, and we're here to support you when you do struggle, because we're in this together. So we pick up in chapter 7 today. It says, After this, Jesus went around Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. Now, it's interesting. It's like we get the very beginning of John, uh, I mean, Jesus' ministry and, 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 you know, he baptizes John and all these things happen. And, and now at chapter 7, he jumps from the beginning of Jesus' ministry all the way to the, the last year of Jesus' ministry. So we've got to switch gears here. Okay, so he's jumping. Jesus has been around for two years. He's been irritating the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees for quite a while now. And so at this point, uh, they're looking for a way to kill him. They're already looking at the end game. Jesus knows it's coming, but the world does not. The other Gospels tell us a lot more about the first two years. But John kind of gets right to the point. He sets, uh, you know, he sets us up uh, uh, for the readers for then and now and about who Jesus is, who Jesus claims to be, who Jesus proves himself to be. And that's what we've been doing with, with Nicodemus and the you know, dominion over the earth and the wind and the sky and the world and all those things. He's, he's basically said, okay, now that we've talked about who Jesus is, now let's talk about the last year of his ministry. And it's far more dangerous for for him in the south in Jerusalem than it is up north in the Galilee region. Verse 2, it says, But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants uh, to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, this is his real brothers talking, okay? This isn't his, oh, we're part of the same belief system, brother. You you know, Bob's my brother and Kenny's my brother. It's not that. This is like your real world brothers talking here. Half brothers, obviously, because God is, is the real father of Jesus, but nonetheless brothers. So John is very clearly here saying they are not followers of Jesus yet. They do not quite believe it. He is in Capernaum with them, and they are saying, Hey, Jesus, we see that you're kind of losing people by the way you've been talking. You know, let us help you with your marketing strategy, you know? And they're just being brothers, right? Kind of ragging on them a little bit. You know, you know how it is. You get around the holidays, and you're like, Oh, great, i got to deal with that again, right? Some people, not all, you know, but, but, but eventually, some of his family did start to believe. In fact, James, his, his brother, becomes an incredible follower after the resurrection. But right now, they're saying, hey, listen, you get going. Don't stay here in Galilee. If you want to start your ministry, get down there in Judea. The Feast of the Tabernacles is coming up. The crowd will be ready for you. And, and uh, you know, you won't even have to do pamphlets. We can save you money, you know. But I can also sense this kind of challenge to him, kind of like, come on, man. If you're really who you say you really are, get your followers and get going. Here's some suggestions. And like any brother, he shows his uh, appreciation in verse 6. Therefore, Jesus told them, My time is not yet come, or not yet here. For you, any time will do. I like this. It's not a major review, but what he's saying is this: there's no timing in your life. You have no goals, you have no sense to your life. You're you're ready for anything. Anything can happen, you're ready for it. But Jesus is looking at the big picture. My life is timed out, and it's not yet time. In fact, he goes on to verse 7, the world cannot hate you. In other words, you've done nothing for the world to cause to, to have this hate towards you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. And this is what I mean by, by us living our life out for, for God beyond the belief we stand up on our morals and we say, that is wrong. That is evil. And we don't have to be like, that is wrong. That's evil. I can't believe you're, you know, and get all mad. But at the same time, we need to stand up and say, you know what? That, that right there, no. I'm not going to be involved in that because that is just wrong. And the world hates that when people do that. Why? Because they start to feel guilty about it. They, they, they cannot stand that at all. So when we really start to plug into Jesus who Jesus really is, we start having a, this different sense of value than the world and calling evil by its name and calling good, good. The world's not going to like that too much, but Jesus is saving or, or saying to the world or saying to these guys, "The world loves you. You're just like one of them. Verse 8, he goes on and says, you go to the festival. I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he'd said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. In other words, he ditched them. (laughs) You know, just get away from them. Verse 11, now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. So again, this is two years into his ministry already, beginning of the third year, and they're they're going, some are saying, man, he's such a good man. I want to see him. Where is he? Others replied, no, he deceives the people. I don't believe him at all, basically. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. You know, this is, it's kind of funny. Everybody has an opinion, right? We all have an opinion. And they had an opinion about Jesus. And this is what is exciting. When enough people, In a community, start acting on their belief, people start to notice, and they start to have opinions. And this is what you want. This is when you allow the Lord to work in your life, and you start changing those lives around you. People start to take notice, and they start to form these opinions. Now, the key to our everyday life is to act like Jesus. Act like Jesus when they give their opinion, because they will give their opinion to you. There's not, they're not always docile about it. And then sometimes we're like, well, I, I guess since I'm a Christian, I can't really say anything. Now, that's, the thinking, that's good thinking sometimes. It's good for us to shut our mouths, right? Because sometimes our mouth gets us in trouble. Maybe it's just me, I don't know, but I can always tell when I've gone too far because my wife just gives me that look But sometimes we have to stand up, like I was saying earlier, and say right is right and wrong is wrong. And the way we do it is we talk about Jesus and we act like Jesus. How we respond to criticism, how we respond to an outright attack on our lives, people take notice of that. How we respond verbally, how we respond on the computer, how we respond in the public forums, Facebook, Twitter, if anybody does any of that stuff, how you respond it gets noticed. And this is what is happening with Jesus. Not on Facebook, but the people are talking about him. And they're watching. They're taking notice. Verse 14 Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and began to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How, does, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does not gain or does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. He is not Moses giving you the law, yet no one of you keeps the law or has not Moses given you the law yet no one of you keeps the law what are you why are you trying to kill me I mean he just finally just goes straight to it they answer in verse 20 you are demon possessed the crowd answered who is trying to kill you Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you were all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Now, they are not lost in this. We probably go, okay, what? what? Okay, all of a sudden, he's thrown out these other things, and he's kind of lost us. And John kind of lost us. The first time that Jesus was here, what, is he, what was he doing? He said he was, about, he was doing his father's work. He healed a guy on the Sabbath. The guy was laying by the pool um, you know, of, I think it was Siloam, uh, for 38 years. And Jesus comes by and says, "Do you want to be healed?" And the guy goes, "Well, no one's there to put me into the pool when the water's, you know." He's like, "But do you want to be healed?" And he heals him. And he says, "Pick up your mat." And the guy picks up his mat and takes off into the temple. He hasn't been able to go to the temple. Now he's able to. Now, the amazing thing is, we think too often that Jesus is all about grace, right? oh God, it's grace, Jesus is grace. And Christians, we have to be so grace-filled about everything, right? He healed the guy for crying out loud. But he came back around and the guy did what? Or, you know, the guy came around and he told, he told him the truth. He goes, we don't know why this guy was crippled, but, but two people did. Jesus and the crippled guy. So Jesus shows back up uh, later, and, and the guy is like, hey, hey, what is your name, by the way? And he goes, Jesus, but listen, and here's some plain hard truth. The thing you did to get you crippled, stop doing that or something worse will happen. You see, grace comes, but it also comes with truth, and the Jews were mad at Jesus and they started plotting all the way back when this happened. Why? Because he broke the Sabbath rules. Now this last week, I it's, it's kind of going off on a tangent. I probably shouldn't time-wise, but, but let me go ahead and do this. This last week, one of my refrigerators, we have a refrigerator out in the garage that holds a lot of our meat. It went kaput. And you're just like, ah. You know, you're just like, all that meat just went kaput <laughs> you know along with the refrigerator and it's so we finally broke down we've been putting it up, putting it off putting it off so we finally broke down and bought a no, new refrigerator okay didn't want to spend the money but you know what what else are you going to do so we so we replaced the refrigerator and i'm hooking it up and uh, now everything's connected okay so uh, it'll tell me if the door stays open too long cuz i have a son that Sometimes we'll leave a door open on the refrigerator, so that's a good thing, you know. So I connected it up through the app and all that, and I'm looking through all the different things of the app, and it said, uh, uh, it said uh, I forgot what, it, what heading it was under, but basically there's a new mode that you can put the refrigerator on. It's called the Sabbath mode. I can show it to you on my phone. It's hilarious. The Sabbath mode. And it will turn off the water. It will turn off the the ice maker so it doesn't make ice and it doesn't push out ice. It will turn off the lights in the refrigerator. It will do all sorts of things to stop the refrigerator from working because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. It'll keep it cold other than that, okay? Which I don't get, okay? But on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to work. How do you open the refrigerator? Because that is considered work, right? Right? according to Jewish law. So why do they even have the Sabbath mode? But that's what cracks me up. You have all these rules. And Jesus broke the Sabbath rules. How dare he do this? But this guy, he's healed. He's totally whole. And he's saying, I connected him with God in a way that you guys, the leadership, never could. And you have a problem with that. And that is why you're trying to kill me. And that's what religion has become. Goes on in verse 25. At that point, some of the people in Jerusalem begin to ask, Isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah, they asked? So the rulers know that they're kind of in trouble. People are talking about this. The power is in trouble, their power. Verse twenty-seven, but we know where the this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, You, yes, you will you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they freaked out and tried to seize him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, "When the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man?" In Other words, they're sitting there going, "This man doing a lot of signs. I mean, I, don't, I I think he's the Messiah. Don't you see it?" Verse thirty-two. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am, uh, I am with you only for a short time, and then I'm going to be uh, going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Hello? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks? Teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. So the, all the commentators come out, and, you know, and they start to debate this. What does he mean? What did he say this? Why? The whole town is talking about this, and people who don't like the conversation are the religious leaders. Why? Because they can't control this conversation. It's not about them. They like the conversation to be about them. Now, the whole thing is happening in the context of uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles. And do you understand what the Feast of the Tabernacles are? Good, so I can make anything up for it, you know. It's an awesome feast. The Jews to this day still celebrate this feast, and it's one of the favorite Jewish feasts. It comes about in October, around in them, six months right after Passover, and the weather is wonderful. Um, it's kind of like our October, but maybe a little cooler um, than uh, than here, but it's like a national camping trip, and for you that like camping, you, you would love this, and, and uh, you know, the they actually call it the Feast of Booths, okay? Everyone literally moves out of their house, and, and, and if you can get to Jerusalem, you do, okay? And, and they put up these boots like tents and all this kind of different stuff. It used to be boots because they didn't have nylon tents and all that kind of stuff. So they would set it up outside their house, and, and, and you know it becomes a family kind of tradition. For one week, you would camp outside. You didn't go to your home, and you set up these flimsy houses breeze are blowing through it the roof is rattling you can see the stars at night and and and, and they would teach their kids their history during this time they would tell the stories of old from, from them escaping from Egypt and being out in the wilderness and the Lord providing, and, and uh, uh, you know, they would talk about how Jerusalem came to be. We used to not have this land, and, and let me tell you how God gave it to us. And every morning, at least in Jerusalem, all, you, know, you would all gather at the temple for a parade, and you could see why the kids would love this, right? And growing up, it would be fond memories. And the priests would get, you know, come along and they're dressed up in their finest robes and they're, they're doing their thing. And, and you would have these golden pitchers that would come after the priests. They're solid gold and everybody would be chanting and they go all down to the pool of uh, Siloam and they would dip these golden pitchers into the water and they would take them up to the temple. And while this is going on, Israel would literally be singing Isaiah 12. It was this huge choir, in a sense. And they were supposed to be, at the end of of that, they were supposed to be quiet for the rest of the day and reflect upon what the priests were saying and what the people were saying and what the priests did. So I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read it, okay? I'm going to spare you that. So the priest would say, surely God is my salvation. And the people would shout back, I will trust and not be afraid. And then they would all just go wild and just cheer. And then the priest would say, the Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my song. And the people would say, he has become my salvation. And they would all cheer. And this would go on and on. And then everyone would say, with joy you, we, with joy you, you will draw water from the wells of salvation And in that day you will say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the people, make mention of his name, that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitants of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. And to the end of the song, literally everyone would fall silent. And then the priest would take the water and pour it out onto the temple mount. They said it was so silent you could hear it from up top. It was so silent that the the noise would echo from the water uh, hitting and splashing all over. It's supposed to remind them that God brought water to them in the desert in Exodus 17. Now, did you catch... The last verse of Isaiah 12. Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. In other words, right there with them. Who was with them right then and there? God, Jesus, on this earth. He was there with them. The Holy One, the Great One, right there, revealing himself to them. So this is what is happening when you get to verse 37 and everyone falls silent. It says here on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood when everybody's supposed to be silent and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty, so you can imagine the shock and the, (gasps) and they start looking at him. They're all thirsty. They're in, a, they're, they're in a dry climate, right? And he's screaming, if anyone's thirsty, they're pouring out the water. Everyone is silent. Jesus stands up and cries out, is anyone thirsty? I could imagine his brothers at this point, if they realized, he was, oh, why? You know, you could imagine them. So he stands up and says, hey, you who? Now that you've done this for seven straight days, because they did this every day, anyone still thirsty? Because I'm dying of thirst right here. Religion has made me thirsty. If anyone's still thirsty, they could come to me right now. The only only requirement, only criteria here is if you're thirsty... Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus is defining what it means to be a follower. See, following Jesus is not about knowledge and intellectual pursuit. I mean, that's a little bit of a learning about God. You know what I'm saying? But, but it's not just about that. That is not enough. Jesus says, you have to come to me and say, Jesus, I'm thirsty. I qualify. I'm thirsty. I've tried lots of things to quench my thirst, and I still have this spiritual thirst. I still have this thirst. Jesus, I need your water. And when we get this, we start to drink it. See, what is really sad is how many people come to Jesus once in a lifetime for what they call the the call of salvation, and they get saved, and and that's for the Lord to decide whether they're saved or not. I'm going to say they're saved, but that ultimately, praise the Lord, I don't decide who is saved and who isn't, right? Because there's some saved people that irritate the bejesus out of me, okay? I probably shouldn't even say it that way. We all have that. but it's sad for those that never come back for another drink. Do you know anyone like this? You can spot. You can spot them. They bear no fruit. They're religiously dry. They're trying to earn their salvation. They're trying to work their way to heaven. And Jesus is saying, no, guys, you're you're not getting it. I'm not saying come to me once and that is it. I'm saying continually come to me and drink. And you will drink because it tastes good, not because you're continually thirsty. You'll come back because it's good. What happens is then he fills us to overflowing, and this is what we call the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we have now in our lives. Verse 39, it says, but this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit had not yet, uh, was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. They didn't have the the opportunity, of the Holy Spirit right then and there like we have today when we accept Jesus, we automatically get it. The problem is we try to stamp it down into our big toe. Instead of allowing it to to overwhelm our lives. But when we allow the Holy Spirit to flow in us, it it can flow to the point where it flows abundantly out of us because we're continually filled with Christ. And the rivers of living water will flow out of us. Not a trickle, not a little drop every now and then, not an occasional slosh. But I think it's so sad that there are so many Christians out there today that when hit... Jesus doesn't come out of them. What comes out of them? The world. The ugliness of the world. And this is not what Jesus meant. This is not what he intended to come out. That's the world. That's not Jesus. Jesus intended that the whole river would flow out of us when we get hit. Do you feel like the river flows out of you today? It's a good question. I say, if you don't, then come back to Jesus and get filled. Come back to him and allow him to take some of the crud out of your life and fill you up with himself, and then you become the living water of Christ. That's the amazing thing about Christ. He allows us to become a conduit to bless others. Well, why don't we pray as the worship team comes up and sings the last song for us. Lord, I thank you that you provide a way, a way that's not only out of the ugliness of this world, but a way to affect others and bring others out of the same ugliness. I thank you for filling us, and we ask to be filled, Lord, for those who maybe haven't been filled in a while, that they would feel the abundance of your grace and mercy come over their lives. That they should be filled. That it would entice them to come back to you and get filled. Because you are a living water, Lord. And we ask that you fill us. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he bless you today and tomorrow and forevermore. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.